The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Father, the fact that we say, let us pray, and that we bow our heads and talk to you is astounding. It should never be. Given who you are and who we are, it should never be. And we say it and do it all the time. It is an astounding privilege. And I say thank you And then I ask that you would help us to understand some of the depth of the wonder of this privilege. We can come into your presence, talk to you, worship you, rejoice before you in all things. It should not be. This morning as we look at your word, we'll see something of the fact that it is supposed to be, but that it shouldn't be. That there's something of you that is alarming and frightening even. But then the outcome of what you have done for us is that nonetheless we still come into your presence and worship in joy and and talk to you as if you are our friend. Because you are. It is an amazing, astounding thing. Give us some understanding of it, some appreciation of it, some joy in it, some rest in it, wonder at it. So Lord, this morning, would you make truths that perhaps are too common for many of us? Make them real Make them to live and and run through our minds and stir us and alarm us and calm us at the same time. For that to happen, Lord, you will have to give life to your word and you will have to give some clarity to my speech and some alertness to our listening and some spirit power to the whole of us here, the whole congregation, speaker and listener alike. Because we are dull of hearing and slow to learn. So Spirit of God, would you run through the room here now and arrest our attention. Open up our hearts that we may receive your truth and be changed by it. Changed first, far before changing our behavior, would you change our thinking and our loving Behavior will follow that. Change our thinking and what we love. Conform us to your image, Lord, in what we are on the inside and then, of course, in what we are on the outside. Make a people pleasing to you. We lay this at your feet because you're the one that has to do it. You are the one in charge of our hearts. You steer them and direct them. And I pray that you would steer and direct them towards yourself this morning. Make us new. Speak in your word, Lord. Have your way with us. 
that You, Father, Son, and Spirit, the one true God, would be honored in Your church. And that we, Your people, would be conformed to Your image for our joy. Lord, that is an element that that rings out crystal clear from this passage. The desired joy of Your people. Make that happen, Lord. Make it happen, I pray. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Turn our attention this morning to 2 Samuel chapter 6, a chapter of marvelous highs and tempered with an alarming low point. This passage has great exuberant joy and shocking death in the same chapter altogether. And as we think about those two things, think about them together, work out how they are related, there's something here for us to learn, important things for us to learn about God and about how we are to interact with Him. By this point in the book, David has become king over all of Israel and he's riding high. We saw in the previous chapter that David's, the stories, the events of his life were, were gathered together to present him as established as king, exalted as king, safe and secure amongst the people, safe and secure in a capital city, safe and secure with a palace and with a growing family, defeating some of those, those enemies who saw his life, the Philistines. He's, he's the king. God has exercised great power to save him and Israel from all their enemies. He works that way for us too. That was part of the point last week. And then at this point in David's life, he looks around and decides to do something very important. As the anointed and dependent and enthroned king, he wants to correct a problem. He thinks, I'm in this capital city, in the center of the people, in the center of our national identity, and the ark still is out in the boonies where it has been for a hundred years, off on the periphery somewhere in this town, Kiriath-Jerim. You may recall how it got there way back when Samuel was a little boy. So this is, you know, a hundred years ago. Israelites sought to use the ark, which represents the presence of God on earth. They sought to use it as a, as a rabbit's foot, lucky rabbit's foot, take it into battle so they could defeat the Philistines, and God did not play that game. Philistines won, took the ark captive, and that caused them all kinds of problems. And so when they sent it back, it caused all kinds of problems for Israel. And it was relegated to this particular guy's house on this particular hill in this particular town and kind of left there safely out of the way. A hundred years later now, David's going to try to fix that situation. As we look at that, it's going to teach us some things about God and about how we are to relate to him. So let me read all of chapter 6, the passage, and then I'll pass back through it to make sure we understand the details. And it's a long passage, so there's quite a bit here. I'm just going to try to catch some of the high points when we go back through it, and then I'll make two observations. 2 Samuel chapter 6, beginning verse 1. David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal, Judah. That's another name for the same town, Kiriath-Jerim. They're in that town. From there to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. 
And they carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God. And Ahio went before the ark. And David and all the house of Israel were making merry before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error, and he died there beside the ark of God. And David was angry because the Lord had burst forth against Uzzah. And that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day. And he said, How can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David, but David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. And it was told King David, The Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. And David danced before the Lord with all his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. As the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michal, the daughter of Saul, looked out of the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. And they brought up the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And when David had finished offering the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts and distributed among all the people, the whole multitude of Israel, both men and women, a cake of bread, a portion of meat, and a cake of raisins to each one. And then all the people departed, each to his house. And David returned to bless his household. But Michal, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, How the king of Israel honored himself today. And covering himself today before the eyes of his servants, female servants, as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. And David said to Michal, It was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me as prince over Israel and the people of the Lord. And I will make merry before the Lord. And I will make myself yet more contemptible than this. And I will be abased in your eyes, but by the female servants of whom you have spoken, by them I shall be held in honor. And Michal, the daughter of Saul, had no child to the day of her death. This is the word of the Lord. Parts of it being difficult, but it is the word of the Lord. It begins with David and all these people gathered tens of thousands, 30,000 soldiers and all the people. There's a huge crowd here in this town getting ready to bring up the ark. To bring it up from there. It says repeatedly, you're going to bring the ark up to Jerusalem. Now the ark of God, 
Many of us know, but the Ark of God was a, a special, precious, several foot by several foot box, essentially. Precious, though, carefully designed, overlaid in gold, because it was the representative throne of God. There were cherubs, angels, two of them on either side that stood above, on either side of this ark, above it, looking down, representing heaven, looking down at earth, because in the box were emblems representing sinful man. The cherubs representing heaven looked down at earth, and when the ark was in its proper place in the special tent that God had told Moses to build, between the cherubs in a, in a little cloud, God uniquely, specially represented His presence. In a cloud. Now God, of course, is omnipresent. He's everywhere in all of the creation. But He particularly, specially represented Himself there. Mirroring in, in tangible earthly things His heavenly throne. He is the Lord of hosts who sits enthroned among the cherubs in heaven, the angels in heaven, Represented here on this ark. So this ark is his special presence here on earth. Unique presence of God here. So precious that it was not to be looked into, not even looked at. When it wasn't hidden away inside of the, of the, the innermost room of the tent, the tabernacle, it was draped with a, with a covering. So it, it itself could not be seen and it was not to be touched. You may recall, if you were here back in 1 Samuel chapter 6, after the Philistines had captured the ark and had suffered from it, they decided, we have to get rid of this thing. We're going to send it back. And it says there in 1 Samuel 6, verse 7, they built a new cart to put the ark on it. Interestingly, just like 2 Samuel chapter 6, verse 3, twice for emphasis, the Israelites built a new cart. They built a new cart just like the Philistines. And if you don't remember the trouble that happened next, back in 1 Samuel 6, you might know the Word of God given through Moses, the book of Numbers. God specified how this ark, His throne, was to be carried, like all of the the mobile thrones of the kings of the earth, by poles on the shoulders of the priests. There were rings on the side of the ark for that very purpose. It's not to be transported like cargo on an ox cart. So if you know God's Word, you see the foreshadowing here and you get a bad feeling about this. But David and all the people seem not to hear the ominous soundtrack playing in the background. If this was a movie, there would be, there'd be music. They don't seem to notice that. And they are instead overcome with joy and delight in the event because what they are doing, they are bringing the presence of God into the center of the people of God. They're bringing it into the main central city, the capital, where everything happens. They're bringing it out of nowhere to somewhere. And they are delighted, tens of thousands of people. And they make merry before the Lord with a wide assortment of instruments and song. This, this is... This point is a very unique point in the history of Israel. Something erupts here when David the psalmist, David the, the man who, who plays the harp, when he comes to the, to the throne, he causes a new form, a new style, new styles of worship to erupt in Israel. 
And we're seeing it here in this chapter with various instruments, all of them listed here with song. There is an eruption of worship. And then suddenly, out of nowhere, something else erupts. The oxen stumble, the cart bucks, the ark teeters and tilts. Uzzah reaches out his hand to steady the ark. And out from the ark erupts the anger of God and strikes him dead. Party over. I mean, can you, can you imagine? You could, you could put yourself, there are a few guys who didn't see it right away and they're still singing over here to the side, but suddenly everybody goes silent. He puts his hand on the ark, dead. The word bursting forth used three times right here. Same word used four times in the previous chapter about how the Lord burst forth in anger and in power to destroy the Philistines. He bursts forth in anger and in power to destroy Israelites acting like Philistines. Death. And David is angry. Verse 8. And afraid. Verse 9. And decides maybe he doesn't want the ark brought near after all. Instead, he leaves it in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite, who may be a Levite. There is specifying the Gittite. What it's saying is that he's from Gath. David has several hundred other warriors, Gittites, from Gath in his army, which is to say they are, he is, a Philistine, ironically. He's a Gentile, loyal to David, David says, I don't know that we want this thing around. You take it. And he puts it in the house of a Gentile and leaves it there. And for the next three months, Obed-Edom the Gittite enjoys the blessing of the Lord until God's gracious blessing on the Gentile incites the Jewish king to jealousy and he decides to try it again. He hears what's been going on, and he says, let's go get the ark. And, verse 13, those who bore the ark of the Lord, they're carrying it this time, they bring it into the city, and again, it is a fabulously joyful, worshipful celebration. The language stumbles over itself with with descriptions of shouting and the sound of the horn and and dancing. And and David himself, who is dancing before the Lord with all of his might, wearing a linen ephod, acting like a, a, a simple priest rather than wearing his royal kingly robes. They offer sacrifices before the Lord. They all dance and they sing and they rejoice before the Lord. He blesses them in the name of the Lord. He distributes gifts to them in the name of the Lord. And then everybody goes home, David included, back to his house, and he meets Michal. Verse 16, daughter of Saul. Verse 20, daughter of Saul. Verse 23, daughter of Saul, in case we can't remember where she's from. Who's Michal like? Saul. And what does she think? Not much. 
She despises him in, in her heart and criticizes him and ridicules him. Not that David cares. His concern is not for what people think. She says, you have acted like a vulgar fool in the eyes of the servants. And he says twice, it was before the Lord. Not before them. I really don't care. It was before the Lord. Incidentally, the Lord who chose me, not your father. Me, not your brother's. Me, who chose me, who chose me. So McCall, bet your bottom dollar that I will rejoice before him. I will rejoice. I will become even more contemptible than this. I cannot do otherwise than make merry before the Lord. The one who claimed me, this holy God who claimed me. That's the passage. And as we think about the two dominant themes, the the awesome and awful striking of Uzzah and the great and fabulous and resolved rejoicing of David, we, we think about those two things We'll learn something about God and how we are to relate to Him. Let me make two observations. And the first one is this. In the first half, because the Lord is holy, His presence is dangerous. Because the Lord is holy, His presence, that is, His his being, being near. Him manifest around me. His presence is a dangerous reality. That is the first alarming note struck in this passage. Even when everything seems to be going just fine and there's a great party and there are good intentions, thousands of people gather to take the ark home, worshiping, everything is just fine. Until all of a sudden this, this power bursts forth against Uzzah. And everybody is alarmed. Verse 8, David is angry. How about you? When we read through this, when, if you didn't know it was coming, when you first got to it, or when we read through it, or, or when I walked back through it again, is are you angry about that? Or maybe not, might not put it as angry, but is there something in you that, that kind of rises up that feels a little bit of, uh, what kind of God is this exactly? This seems a little, no, maybe a lot, excessive. They're all trying to do something good here. Uzzah himself is trying to be helpful to keep the ark from falling off. Does God really want the ark to fall off and the lid to tip off and the angels to be busted? He's trying to be helpful. He's a good guy, good-intentioned person who's kept this in his house for for quite some time. And then here's this God with such a short fuse that his his anger is kindled and he rages against this guy and strikes him, not just injures him, strikes him dead on the spot. He doesn't even count to three. What kind of God is that? I don't know if I can buy that. 
doesn't seem right. Something like that bouncing around your head. Something like that. Something like that was bouncing around in David's head because he's first angry. It's a very reasonable human response. A natural way of reacting to this, but there's something we need to get straight. We need to realize he struck Uzzah dead for his error, it says, verse 7. We need to get the error in mind. We need to be, be like clear on that. What is the error? There's something that's very easy for us to forget here. Something that, that David and Uzzah and company forgot, not just in the moment, not just in this moment, but all week long while they're building the new cart. And that morning when they hoist the thing, the box, not thinking about the presence of God, but they hoist the box onto the cart. And all the while that they're traveling down the road, it doesn't happen right away, they're oblivious to something. They've forgotten, they've overlooked something, disregarded it. Even in, in joyful bliss, they are missing, overlooking the holiness of God. This is the ark of God. It says, get the introduction, called by the name of the Lord of hosts who sits enthroned on the cherubim. Fourteen more times we're going to talk about the ark, the ark, the ark of the Lord, the ark of God, the ark, but it's introduced to us with the long title. To lift our eyes, our minds to something. This is the ark of the Lord who sits not between just these two gold statues. They're just made of gold. It's representing, reminding us, depicting for us that He sits enthroned there between the cherubim there. People, men and women, boys and girls, every one of us can picture this. Lift up your eyes and see Him there. The earthly thing here, the concrete, the gold, the wood, is just supposed to make us think about there. And perhaps to catch some little picture of what Isaiah saw, he depicts it best of all in the Bible in Isaiah 6, when he saw there. He talks about a moment when he was taken to see something there. The throne of God in the temple in heaven he describes the, the robe of the Lord, his train, an earthly king's robe, the length and the beauty of his train depicts his majesty. And he says the train of his robe filled all of the temple. And around him, not just cherubs, but other angels, seraphs, flew. And they sang out in praise, not with the earthly voices like this, but with voices that made the whole place shake. They cried out in the midst of a temple that's shaking, Covered in smoke, they cried out what? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. This place and the earth and every inch of creation is full of all of His glory. And Isaiah sees that. Will you lift up your eyes and see that? He saw it and he fell down as dead saying, My eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. The same language as is here. I have seen him with eyes that see, and I am as a dead man. 
And everybody in this chapter and everybody in this room, me included, we are far more like Uzzah and not afraid to treat this box as common. There is holy, 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 and there is, put it on a cart here, I'll hold it. No, you won't. Because I am holy. We are only indignant because we have no idea who He is or who we are. We commonly think, we commonly think as the Lord as bigger than us. Stronger than us. Better than us. Wiser, smarter, purer than us. In the height of irony and blasphemy, some religious people even teach that he used to be one of us. Just like us, but he improved and became more. He is holy, 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 which is not primarily a statement about moral excellence that is included, but it is more. Language fails, but to attempt to use language, holy, 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 is something like separate and unique, separate and unique, separate and unique. Other and distinct, other and distinct, other and distinct. Set apart, not one of us. Set apart, not one of us. Set apart, not one of us. Language fails, so God pictures it for us. The God who is other and set apart and distinct does not exist in the creation, He created the creation. If you could think about which you can't because of our finite mind, but if you could think about all that you know, and I'm no astronomer, so I don't know a lot, all that you know about the earth, the solar system, the galaxy, the universe, space in general, go way, 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 way out there to as far as you know, wherever the edge of space is, nowhere within that is God contained. He made all of that. He was before it was. You can't go way out into outer space to find where God is. He exists outside of that. Whatever it is that's outside of everything, which we can't imagine. And then He spoke it into existence from nothing. Spoke it into existence. Made it all up from nothing. He is holy and distinct, not like any of this. And then he pictures it for us in, in events that happen on this creation that he made. This little dot amidst all of the vastness. There's a little place called earth. And in a little place on that earth, he parted a sea and made dry land to have a million people walk through it. Makes things that cannot be, be. He made Mount Sinai shake and smoke and burn. 
And in the days before amplification, a voice heard across a whole valley. Not like anything anybody had ever known. And he strikes down a man who would touch the ark, strikes him down dead. To try to show us what language fails to be able to describe, a being with origins. No. No, no origins. A being with, with knowledge. Well, actually, knowledge is a weak word to describe one who just is everything. It's not even really accurate to say God knows stuff. God, God just is it. He didn't learn anything. He doesn't grow in anything. We, it's hard to describe, but he attempts to show us these things to give us an idea of a God who is other and distinct, not like us, holy, holy, holy. And we are so small and so finite that we would dare to reach out and touch Him and to treat Him as common, something to be grabbed with our hands and held and controlled. Oh! When He is near, when this one is near, it is a dangerous situation. And to begin to realize some of that, we feel afraid if we're left alone in the woods at night. In the presence of this one, fear is appropriate. And David moves from anger very quickly to fear. Verse 8 becomes verse 9. He's afraid and says, how can I have the ark come to be with me? Which is not really a question. It's more of a statement. I can't have the ark come to be with me. Cannot be. So, here, Gentile, you take it. He's not really asking a question, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? But nonetheless, it is a question that bears answering. Because, we keep reading, we realize the ark of the Lord does come to be with him. And we realize that the ark of the Lord bees just fine with Obed-Edom and actually pours out blessing upon blessing upon blessing for months. So the presence of the Lord is dangerous, but not automatically, unceasingly terrifying and dangerous and destructive. How can the ark of the Lord, the presence of the Lord, come to me? Well, the passage only hints because it's not the main point of the passage. The main point of the passage is less how and more that the presence of the Lord comes. But it hints Most of us know this, but this may this fall on you too, because if if I were to stop right here, I've told a half truth that is in danger of without the rest of it becoming an untruth. This half truth is entirely true. Far more true than most of us realize, than all of us realize. But there is a question that has an answer. Well, how, how, what? 
Can this ark, can this presence of this Lord come to me? Can I be before it? And the answer is, obviously, yes. How? Well, we get the hint in the passage by looking at the larger context of where the ark sits. It sits in a context, a context around which sacrifices, 13, 17, 18, talk about sacrifices. David brings it and puts it in a tent that he designed. This ark as many of us know, it sits in the context of a larger system of sacrifice that was intended in its various permutations to deal with sin. To make it possible for certain people at certain times in certain ways to draw close to certain distances from this ark. All of it is designed to point us forward to one great coming sacrifice that would make it possible for people to stand in the presence of the Holy God and not be struck down. There's a sacrifice coming that is, doesn't happen in this passage, but it's coming. A great final sacrifice by a great final king and a great final priest who are all one and the same king and a priest and a sacrifice. His name is Jesus. That's what Jesus is doing when He comes to the cross. He's dying the death before the holiness of God that you deserve. And all of the symbolic separation of the ark, it was put in, it was at the time it existed in a building with a curtain that was torn apart Symbolizing people can now come right into the presence of this ark and not be in dread, but come in joy. That sacrifice, the sacrifice of Christ on the cross, is the only way, the only ground for any human being to stand in the presence of this holy, dangerous God. And it works. It works. The curtain was torn. You can come in. You have to by faith. It doesn't, it doesn't matter that it happened. It matters that it happened and that you trust it. Most of us do here. I know, I know most of you. I don't know everybody here, but I know most of you. And I know where you are with this. And I, I say, let this wash over you because there is an amazing truth here that is made all the more amazing and astounding when you realize that it should not be. I come into the presence of God, but it should not be. I say, let us pray. And I say, Father, and it should not be because there should be from Him power bursting out against me. But there isn't because of Christ. Glory to Christ. Glory to Him. Praise Him, Christian. And if you're not a Christian, trust Him and be saved. presence of God is a dangerous thing. But in the sacrifice of the King, God is brought near to us for our joyful worship, not our dread, for our joyful worship. And that's the second observation I'm going to make. Let me state it again. Here's, here's a sentence that I've written. It. God's King brings God near 
for the sake of joyful worship. God's King brings God near. Makes it possible for people, ordinary people, and God, this God, to be together for the sake of joyful worship. I draw this from observing what it is that David's trying to do from the very beginning of the passage, and then when that fails, he tries to do it again and then accomplishes it. He's trying to do one thing. He's trying to bring the ark, to bring the presence of God from the periphery to the center of the existence of the people of God. He's trying to bring God who was there, who was present, who was obviously at work for Him. We've read that in previous chapters again and again and again. But he's trying to bring Him front and center, not just so that He can say He did it, but for the sake of the joyful worship of this God as erupts countless times in this passage. It's going to bring up the ark, probably with Deuteronomy 12 in mind. In Deuteronomy 12, God, the, the Israelites had not yet come into the land, but God said there in Deuteronomy, I'm going to give you the land, and one day you're going to conquer the land, and there's going to be uh, you and the, the people are going to be settled there, and you will have chased out your enemies, and then at that point I will fix a place for my name to be. You then come up to that place and offer sacrifices, and three times he says, and there before me rejoice. You and your children rejoice before me there. There, all that you do there, rejoice before me. I thought he wanted them to come and worship. Yeah. Worshiping is rejoicing. If you're not rejoicing, you're not worshiping. I said this before, so I'm repeating myself, I think, but you think about this. No one is honored by, you are great. Are we done yet? I mean, married people, try that with your spouse. You know, this, this is the easiest way. This is, I mean, this is old. You've read this. You've heard this before. But you know, try, try that with your spouse. Oh, you're wonderful. <laughs> When's this date going to be over? <laughs> I love you. <laughs> Obviously, that's not just dishonoring. It is insulting. Worship, for it to be worship, must be rejoicing. And if it's not rejoicing, it is not worship. It is the contrary. It is an insult. He brings up God from the periphery to the center for them to come and worship, that is, to come before Him and rejoice. Which very clearly is an honoring to God and so, so, so good for me. We are people made on purpose by God to chase down with all of our might joy. 
We are pleasure seekers. We are delight hounds. We run it down wherever we can find it. How did that come to be? By the design of God. And He has said, and while I am on the periphery and you are chasing down your delight with vigor everywhere else, you will never find it. Move me to the center and worship me rejoicing, 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 rejoicing before me. They are one and the same thing. They are one in the same thing. And this is why we exist. It's why we exist. And if you stop and think about that for a moment, oh, bless God. Bless God for this. Do you realize what a burden it would be if the reason you existed was to pay homage to the Almighty? Walk up here and pay homage to me. Because I am God. That would be hell. Incidentally, that's how hell works. With the power who reigns, Drawing out from you groveling. Glory, 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 glory to God. That He made you and then requires you. I'm going to use this language. I'm going to use my tone like this to get the contrast. It requires you to come and worship Him. That is, to delight and rejoice, and rejoice, and delight, and delight, and rejoice. Worshiping. Where am I? We were made, we were made for this. And God sent a king to bring it about. God sent a king to move God from the periphery. First, initially by the cross, to move Him to the center of your life and to bring you into His presence. But then every single day, because Christian, talking to Christians now, Christian, we need to be reminded of this constantly. We are far more like Uzzah and David. We forget, we forget, we forget God entirely. So God gloriously through the rule of His King, subjugates us for our joy. You're going to run off over here and chase all of the... No. Come back. The Christian word we use to that is sanctification. Come back and rejoice. How twisted we get. We think that this is cruel. We think that rule is bad. No. The rule of the king is love for our joy. To bring us back to that for which we were made, for that which you all are desperate for. Which is the only thing that satisfies us. What he does when he saves us and then keeps bringing us back is he's working in us a new taste. He does not become less than holy. He works in us a taste for the holy. A taste for the other. 
I'm describing sanctification in another way. We walk around here with pedestrian desires. Just prayed about earlier. We, we really think I'd be I'd be happy with a raise and a vacation. You wouldn't. I've had a raise and I've had a vacation. So have most people. There's something in us made for something else. And God, when He works to save and then to keep saving, to sanctify us, He's working a change in our affections, in our tastes, to give us, not changing God so that God draws near, but changing us so that we draw near. And that we see, we develop a taste and a a sight for, a, a wonder at the other. We were made in the image of God, made to live in a garden. It's been twisted and marred, and He's fixing that, changing us in, in the in here, not just in the behavior, but in the in here, so that we, we see and then, and then look at a little longer and then think about maybe longing for and then really desperately want to be like Him, with Him there. And in a very real and good way, we are ruined for the world forever after. Now, I should also add, in a very real way, we need to figure out how to live in the world to the glory of God. Yes, 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 yes. That's what I'm talking about right now. He works change in us so He does not become less than holy, holy, holy. But we long for it and desire it and are drawn to it and are satisfied ever more deeply with God Himself, the center of our joy. That's the King's work in moving God to the center for our worship That is, for our joy. To center Him in here. To focus our eyes on Him. I'm describing the same thing in like ten different ways. Hoping that one will make sense. He comes to awaken that taste and then means for us in freedom and abandon to worship Him. And I mentioned the freedom and abandon because there's one other thing we need to notice in the passage here. A a number of us, I think, might track with the idea of worship and joy if, as we read it here, it wasn't just so charismatic. Because we don't do charismatic. I mean, cut out the dancing, the, the leaping, the shouting, and the making merry and half the instruments, and then I can track with you. (laughs) Well, that's not here. And I hope that as you're thinking like that, you're not actually in McCall's place. It'd be easy to be in McCall's place. The daughter of Saul, Saul, Saul. What's McCall's basic problem? She tells him, there a couple times, but she tells him basically says, you dishonored yourself by behaving like a shameful, disgusting person in front of other people. And David says, twice in response, I mean, look at this, verse 21, the beginning of the verse and the end of the verse, it was before the Lord. It was before the Lord. It wasn't before other people. Before the Lord, before the Lord, I with 
clearly with freedom and exuberance, I danced and sang and shouted and rejoiced before the Lord, before the Lord. How and why does David worship like that and incidentally teach Israel to worship like that? He's modeling it in front of them. He introduces all these instruments. And from here on, he sets up schools of worship, singers and musicians. He introduces this, teaches it, sets the people of God on a path. It isn't just about him himself only. Why and how does he get there to this unfortunately charismatic worship style? Well, first, notice the logical point of what's between the before the Lord, before the Lord. That is, the Lord who chose me. When I had no earthly right to it. Now, he's talking particularly about the kingship, but there is a logical extension to election for salvation. But he says, I was chosen to be king. I had no earthly right to it. I'm not from your family. But he rejected your father and all your brothers, even the good brother, even Jonathan. And he chose me for no earthly reason. He chose me before I was born. And then he chose me before I'd done anything. And he kept choosing me and protecting me and carrying me all the way to this place. Bet your bottom dollar I will rejoice before him. Because I realize what this holy, holy, holy God who should have struck me like he struck Uzzah. And if not that, there's no way on earth he should have put me on the throne. But he has done so. Amazing is this God. That's what's going through his mind. But there's something else we should consider. His response, when he says in 22, I will make myself yet more contemptible than this, he is not celebrating contemptibility. He's not saying, you know, hey, there's something wonderful about being vulgar. What he's saying, and, and, and follow this, I'm going to try to not be complicated with the wording, but it might be. I'll say it twice. What David understands, lives, and is now expressing is that for worship to be full, released in its joy, in its expression, it must be full in its focus on the goodness and glory of God. Let me say it again. We must reject human dignity as our highest objective and focus fully on the glory of God. I'll say it again. We must, like him, unlike McCall, like David, renounce personal honor and dignity as our controlling value. When personal honor and dignity are our controlling value, what that looks like is, ooh, what are people thinking? See the thought there. Lord, mm. or I maybe I hold my hands up and I think, what are people thinking of my hands? Who's looking at me? 
I wonder how I look to other people. He says, it's not before other people, it's before the Lord. Before the Lord who chose me, though I had no earthly right. I have rejected, would say David, not McCall, I have rejected human dignity. I'll become contemptible in your eyes. I'm sure I will. I know how you think. I've rejected human dignity, human prestige, as my controlling value. And where that takes him is dancing and shouting. Where that takes you might be there, might be somewhere else. The point is not we must dance. The point is we must take off the governor. Speaking in automobile terms here. Or I'm not a NASCAR guy, but I think this is what restrictor plates are. That hold down the speed or the in effect, hold down the speed. We have to take those things off of our heart as we look to God and then let it go where it goes. Loving God and loving your neighbor. No longer loving yourself and your self-image and your self-dignity and how you look before others. I'm concerned about this last point for us. A little bit because of specifics to us and a little bit because of specifics for the type of people that we are. The type of people that we are generally are a more heady people. Not every single one, but generally, partially that's my fault. I am what I am. I draw people who can understand me, and that means often we perpetuate our problems. And the people who are kind of like us have restrictor plates. Thinking, 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 thinking about them. So I just want to say... God means by the ministry of His King to move Himself to the center of your heart for you to joyfully worship. And if that's going to happen, there's got to be something pulled out. The concern for your self-dignity. And that will enable, by the grace of God, that will enable you to marvel at before the Lord, the One who chose me, though I had no earthly right. Let it take you where it takes you. And that's the type of people we are generally. But then specifically, I, I do think that in, in some ways, as I interact with some people and I hear some people talking, I think there's some way that we, we think it's... We, we create an atmosphere of it's wrong to be expressive. I cannot tell you, I cannot tell you how many times... I've been here eight years now. How many times people have said to me at the door, I wanted to say amen, but I didn't know what other people would say. That means there's a culture. It feels like, I want to go, so I would like to say that person before the Lord, not before them. I want to go, but I also want to say to everybody else, are you inadvertently creating the culture of, when that person says amen? (laughs) What? 
don't. Before the Lord, amen. Somebody say amen. (laughs) Nice. Let them be before the Lord and let you be before the Lord. I've been in all kinds of church settings. I've, I've been in places where people have danced in the aisles or people have fallen down and where nothing at all has happened. 1 Corinthians 14 talks about orderly worship. The best places I've been in where there's been dancing in the aisles, there's also been orderly worship because there have been people who have helped certain ones to, after a time, kind of find themselves again. That would be shocking the first time that happened here. This was shocking the first time it happened. The king in an ephod dancing. But you know what happens? Eventually it becomes, that's her before the Lord. I'll take care of that. And this is then me before the Lord. I'm I'm busy. God is holy, holy, holy. Bless God that He has provided a way for us to come into His presence, not making Him less holy. Not making Him less holy, but inclining us, but removing the penalty that stands against us and then inclining us to be drawn to Him for our joy. For His glory, for our joy. So, Men and women, delight in God and don't be guarded against Him. If you're in Christ, if you're in Christ, He comes near for you to joyfully worship. So let me pray. And then we'll move to communion. Lord, I thank You that You are a God who is holy, who is other, because that's what our hearts were made for. The great human tragedy is that we have created You in our own image, and that never fills us. You are vast. You are vast. We will spend eternity getting to know You and we will never fully know You. We'll never run out of You. Holy, holy, holy. And we bless Your name that because of... We're going to look here at the, at the cup and the bread that because of what this represents, You have made a way for us to be in Your presence and You invite us and indeed command us to come and worship for our joy. For our joy. Thank You for Your rule, You good King, You... And so help us, help me, my brothers and sisters here, help those here who don't know you, Lord, awaken them and convict them and show them Christ as their hope for joy. Meet with us now, Lord, I pray. I pray this in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. 
Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.